Get road trip ready with a service checkup at your local Chevy dealer. They can save you time and money and get the job done right the first time, worry-free. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for current service specials or to schedule a test drive. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Paul Listic Behind the Curtain, my opportunity to step away from the world of politics and law that I cover on TV and talk usually about entertainment on here on the Behind the Curtain podcast. But today we're going to take a deeper look into Chicago and some of the fascinating sights and things you may not know even exist in this city. There is so much history here that to read about it, to learn about it, um, I, I, I'm always surprised that there's always something new to learn. And so joining me to talk about what no better title for a book than Amazing Chicago, uh, to talk about the book Amazing Chicago, uh, the city of big shoulders, murder and mayhem. David Witter, who wrote that book, joins me. David, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. So the, the, the book, I mean, it's literally almost an encyclopedia of, of locations and places that people probably don't know about. Maybe they do. And they might know the history, but not know that it's here or where it is. And you answer all those questions. Talk to me for a bit. We're going to go through several of those. I want people to get as excited about the book as I was when I first saw it. But, um, what led you to, to want to write the book in terms of the notion of saying that, I mean, did you grow up here and you went, there's just so much in the city people don't know about? Yeah, I, I actually grew up in Lincoln Park, and, and, and ironically, I'm doing a presentation at Lincoln Park Library this weekend, and I am uh, is sort of focusing on Lincoln Park, but there's a lot of historical things as a kid that I just sort of grew up around, uh, riding my bike or walking. I went to day camp across from the, uh, it's the Kennison Grave Monument by the farm in the zoo. I grew up by the Reby Moving and Storage about four blocks away. Uh, there was a house that survived the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, there was the Gerber House, which was an LGBT monument where they uh, established the first uh, organization and magazine. And so I just kind of grew up around this stuff. And the other kids, we'd talk about it and we knew about it. And it just sort of stuck with me. And you've divided this up into a series of, I think, like six chapters, something like that. There's there's the plenty here. How did you, I mean, the first chapter is called um, First People, Places and Things. You get into to famous people, iconic locations. So how did the structure dictate itself to you in terms of how you wanted to organize the book? Well, I wrote a book called Oldest Chicago, which was uh, with Lake Claremont Press, which was a wonderful organization in Chicago publishing. And, and so I, you know, the first chapter is kind of a, uh, a little reprise of oldest Chicago with some of these oldest places, but that book came out in uh, 2012. So there were some, some significant changes. So I updated it and then it just sort of went from there. There's a chapter on these, these, I, I just call them somewhat silly monuments. There's the, there's the, the drugstore giant Indian. There's the Reby moving in storage. They're kind of odd monuments. And then there's famous people that you have to cover in places, uh, Commemorating them, Jane Adams, uh, the uh, WC Women Christian Temperance Union, yes, WCTU. Uh, so we had to cover that. And then there's the Obama Kissing Rock, Barack Obama in Hyde Park, which covers our great former president. Um, and so then the end was sort of a, uh, I wrote that for the Halloween season, which just passed uh, sort of ghosts. And it, the, the theme there was that there has been so much murder and mayhem between gangsters and unfortunately serial killers and great tragedies like the uh, Iroquois fire that Chicago is somewhat of a haunted. There's a lot of uh, haunting and there's a lot of sort of creepy places here. So that kind of ended the book. 
And of course, as you're saying those, I've, I've read the book. So every one of those, home, yep, remember that. And what's great is too, each of these things just gets like a page or two. So it's really just a great way to go, look, here it is. Here's where you can find it. Here's some history about it. And you move on um, to the next thing, which I think is great fun. Let's spend some time. Um, you did our morning show, WGN morning show, when of course you don't get the amount of time you want to to go through. Then we get more time, the luxury of some extra time to talk about some of the great places you point out. So um, I, I actually have some things I picked out for pretty much every chapter, and there's a lot more in the book I'm not touching, um, but let's get people interested, but in just some of the things that I picked out that I thought were really interesting. For example, it never occurred to me that the last survivor of the Boston Tea Party, whose name I came to learn is David Kennison, well, he was kind of a liar, right? So one of the things you talk about is we're not quite sure what to believe from this guy anyway. That's actually one of the themes of my book. I mean, our first quote-unquote great settler, uh, Kinsey, also had he's also accused of being Chicago's first murderer, and he uh, sold whiskey to both sides of the War of 1812, and so he has a somewhat of a shady past. But so this these people sort of started, and now we have, of course, as you would know very well, Mr. Lisdick, politicians who are not completely above board, and some of them even have trials going on. Uh, so it's kind of set the the tone for this history of Chicago uh, people being somewhat con men, being somewhat skirting the law. So David Kinnison was kind of an innocent uh, con man. He claimed to be 115 years old. He claimed to uh, be in the Boston Tea Party. He claimed to be a, a soldier in the Revolutionary War. He claimed to be a soldier in the War of 1812. And he went around what was what is now Lincoln Park uh, with his little vial of tea saying that he got this at the Boston Tea Party. And in those days, there was no Google. There was no way to check on people. Um, you know, you could just, you could kind of get away with a lot more. Um, people were a lot more gullible. So he, he, that's how he made his living, telling stories and collecting money. Um, you know, but of course, this was all impossible. He, he died at 85, which is a very old age for that time. But if, if he would have been a member of the Boston Tea Party, he would have been six years old. If he would have been in the Revolutionary War, he'd been, you know, maybe 11 years old. Um, it was, it was found out that he was in the army during the War of 1812. They did find military records. But, um, you know, is, is this many may know, many may not know Lincoln Park, where the Lincoln Park Zoo is, a farm in the zoo, where the Chicago History Museum is now. That was once the, the municipal graveyard. And so that was that was just covered with graves, basically that whole area. Um, there's still the couch tomb there, which many may be familiar with. Um, it is just a little bit like yards north of the Chicago History Museum. Mm -hmm. And that for some reason, couch didn't allow the city to move his grave. So, but long story short, a lot of people were buried there at that time. Kennison is one of them. Kennison is one of them, and his grave stayed there because of his fame and because of, you know, all this, and they they left it there. They didn't disturb it. Yeah, what I love is you add the pieces of history, like, again, he was sort of a harmless liar, a storyteller. You basically said he was a good storyteller. So maybe he wasn't at the Boston Tea Party. He wasn't 115 years old, but he was still, obviously, he was probably somebody who really, you know, wowed people and and really intrigued them. And, and so people can see him uh, or his grave over at Lincoln Park Zoo. Not everything in the book is from 1800. The city, of course, got incorporated 1837, but not everything takes us back to those days uh, because one of the things, Chicago known for deep dish pizza, and you point out exactly where the deep dish pizza here and who started it in Chicago. I'm talking about Uno's. 
Yeah, Uno's Pizza. It, it's it's a kind of it's a it's an interesting story of a lot of I write a lot about Chicago's ethnic foods and the Italian beef, the Chicago hot dog, uh, Saganaki, how they started somewhat by accident and somewhat by plan. I think the Uno's Pizza was uh, more by plan. Um, the the owner or the originator uh, served in the army in World War Two. Uh, I believe was his name, and he was from Texas. And he saw pizza in Italy. He was in the Italian, uh, cur- the curtain, the Italian front. And, uh, he thought it would be, he liked it. And, but he said it, you know, it was just a snack, which in Italy it is. It's an appetizer. It's a side dish. But he said, in order to make this a main dish, uh, you have to make it larger with more meat and so forth. And being from Texas and everything big in Texas, he made, they made the, the giant, uh, pizza. Now, the deep dish with, with tons of toppings, tons of tomato, tons of sausage, tons of cheese. Um, and I also point out in the book that Lou Malnati uh, was the um, was the cook there. And, uh, and he is of Italian extraction, Italian ethnicity. And I think we don't realize that back in the 1940s, none of us, I don't think, were alive then. Uh, but they didn't have things like Italian sausage, mozzarella cheese. They didn't have these olive oil. These things weren't so known uh, to people, they're only uh, present in the Italian enclaves of Chicago and New York. So I, there's a very, very strong uh, truth thread of truth that it was actually Malnati that came up with the, you know, Sewell might have came up with the idea, but Malnati came up with the actual recipe, and um, there was somewhat of a, a feud between them. And obviously, Malnati's son uh, opened up this chain of, of pizza places. And now we both have Uno's and, and Lou Malnati's. And I think between the two chains, there's probably about 150 uh, different outlets across America and even across the world. And Uno's became Dewey's as well. That's also Seawell's, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the original, I think 29 East Ohio, you point out it's been there since 1943. It's, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful old house. Yeah. So again, not everything go, takes to the 1800s, doesn't have to. You've got a series of famous people. And I think you mentioned the Obama kissing rock. That's in the book as well. I think most people know that Frank Lloyd Wright uh, and all his work in Oak Park and whatever is here. People may not realize that the great writer Ernest Hemingway was born here and his birthplace is there. Yeah, we we visited his house. Uh, we visit every couple of years. It's in Oak Park. It's kind of an old, I don't say it was quite a Queen Anne, but it's that era. It's a very large house. Um his father was a physician. Um, he was born there in Oak Park. He lived there till he was about, uh, I think, until he went into the army in, in World War One. Um, he described Oak Park as a uh, as a city of wide lawns and narrow minds. It was sort of a famous quote. But you know, it is kind of interesting because Hemingway was born, and I think he still went to visit. His, I think he lived with his parents and his grandparents at, at the big house. And I think he, I think he went to visit them. Um, and it's, it's quite possible that he and Frank Lloyd Wright uh, actually might have walked past each other, you know, on the sidewalk at some time, not knowing that they would go on to become perhaps the greatest living architect or the greatest architect and the greatest writer in of the 20th century from America. You got to take a little tour from there and go over to Bronzeville. One of my favorite jazz musicians of all time is Louis Armstrong. Um, obviously, the the show Wonderful World on its way to Broadway uh, was just here in Chicago recently, and um, and so I think most people uh, tie Louis Armstrong to New Orleans, and indeed he did grow up in New Orleans. But people may not know Chicago was his home for many years, and the home is still there. Yeah, uh, 
don't exactly, I think 1922 to 1927 or 29. You said 22 to 29 is what you say. In the 29, okay. Yeah, it is significant because not only did he live here, which, you know, people live different places, but this was the place where he really came into his own. Um, in New Orleans, he, and in the first weeks or months of, in Chicago, he played with King Oliver, which was a, a, a big band, a jazz band. King Oliver was the, the king of jazz at the time. And Armstrong was his first trumpet player, but they played in a more of what we think now of the Dixieland style, where you have this uh, combination where you have musicians playing in harmony and in several little groups and clarinets and banjo and, and kind of what we call Dixieland. Um, once he got to Chicago and he got away from uh, Oliver, he was married to Lil Hardin, who was a very brilliant and unrecognized woman. She was a jazz musician, a composer piano player i think she gave him a lot of his ideas but mm -hmm. being a female in those times they just didn't give her the credit but uh, he and hardin sort of figured out what was to become everybody admits from ken Byrne to most jazz uh, scholars what was to become kind of jazz uh cornet chop suey these kind of uh these kind of uh compositions that he made where, where he was the first one to sort of sort of solo and to play against the melody and to, and to improvise and to do what, what we now call, you know, what we now associate with jazz. And that yeah, was all and, in Chicago. And and others, you know, Muddy Waters, so many great names here. Let me go to some of the uh, iconic, what you call in a chapter three, iconic locations. Okay. And there's so many, but you know, a lot of people know that the, um, the, the water tower, not the water tower, shopping mall but next door the water tower survived the chicago fire and a lot of people think it's only the couple of structures around there that sh survived the chicago fire but you actually tell us to go take a look at 20 i think it's 2121 north hudson if i can read my writing the richard ballinger house that house should survive the chicago fire and it's still there yeah it's, it's a beautiful house and it's still there um i actually went you know for the book i went by there to uh visit and take a picture and uh I think I, I, I joked around. Some guys were, were, were there. Some electricians were there, and I joked around. You guys putting in smoke alarms, and they had no idea what I was talking about. And then I told them that this this house survived the Chicago fire. Um, the legend has it. I believe he was a police officer, and I believe he he you know he saw the fire coming, and so he doused the roof with water from his hose. And then the legend has it he he had some hard cider or beer in the basement, and he kind of finished, he, he was kind of reluctant to use his hard cider and beer, but he poured their last of that on the roof, and because of that, and I think just because of kind of luck and the way the winds blew, it survived the Chicago fire, and uh, I think it was just recently sold, but it's a beautiful home. Yeah, you have a picture of it in there, and I was sort of surprised at how nice it, it looks. When we think of the movie industry, everybody thinks it's Hollywood, it's Hollywood, you know, and the truth is, people don't really realize the huge names that were involved in the film industry's early days right here in Chicago. I'm talking about SNA Studios. Yeah, that's in uh, Uptown, and that was that's a fantastic story. Um, a lot of uh, local journalists have covered it and, you know, things like that. But I actually, many years ago, one of my first articles that I wrote for the Chicago Reader, I found a 95-year-old a, a man at the time that was a stuntman that worked there at SNA, and uh, I was able to corroborate this through through relatives and so forth. But, um, you know, I think what happened was the, the Edison had the patent on the movie camera, the motion picture camera, and he wanted to collect money from everybody who used it. Mm. So they made films for a time in New York, but then Edison would send his his guys out to, to collect the money for the patent. 
and and so they went to Chicago to sort of get away from these uh, agents, I suppose they were. So between uh, 1908, SNA, uh, Anderson and Spoor, I believe, were the two guys, Bronco Billy Anderson, they started this studio um, making, you know, obviously small, silent films. But with, with, you know, Chaplin and these people moved from New York uh, around 1913, 1914, 15. Uh, Chaplin was only here for less than a year. Uh, but, you know, in those days they made a few movies a week. So he made several movies here. And Gloria Swanson was here. She, she was a secretary working there. She grew up in Uptown. Ben Turpin was a, a star at that time. And they used the lakefront when they did pirate movies. They used the Lincoln Park when they did jungle movies. Um, they, I guess apparently they, they hung out at the Green Mill. So it, it is a great story. And, and, and the building is still there. Uh, it's a landmark. Um, they, have, they have a very cool emblem on the on the front door. Yeah, there's there's a residential building on the corner of Pine Grove and Diversity, which apparently Chaplin, it's alleged to, that he lived there uh, for a short period of time. But when you go there on the Architectural Foundation weekend and you talk to them, not so sure maybe Chaplin lived there. Not you know, there's arguments to be made that he he never quite did live there. Maybe he was there, but everybody we love the drama of at least thinking these places are there. But we know SNA that certainly did have Chaplin here. You point out other places like Walt Disney's birthplace here. I'm just mentioning them. We we don't have uh, time to talk about all of them, but I want people to read about these because Walt Disney being so huge. But let's go. Let's stay with the movie topic for a moment if we can. Um, and and you talk about the Grease Drive-In, the famous movie Grease, and of course the guys that wrote that. I mean, they're from here. The the uh, in fact the song. Um, uh, Summer Loving was actually originally called Foster Beach. It's from here. And you tell us where the drive-in is that takes place. Yeah, well, Jim Jacobs went to Taft High School, and um, he grew up around what is now uh, Sayer Avenue and right by where I think they built, they just missed his his father's home when they built the expressway. But uh, yeah, and, and he went to, a, there's another place called Parisi's, which recently called, which was more of a he just a regular hot dog stand, but Superdog is just the place, and it's a place that he, I'm sure when he moved to Los Angeles, he remembered Superdog. It's got a, a great neon sign. It's got what's called Googie Architecture, which was a, a type of architecture that, that many drive-ins had in the 1950s. And, you know, the family has kept it going. I think it it, it started about 1946. They have these, they have a giant, uh, Maury and Flory, which are giant fiberglass hot dogs that, that, that stand on top of the roof. And it's really become a neighborhood landmark. It's still a drive-in. I mean, you, you drive in there and you press the button on the speaker and the waiter or waitress comes out sometimes on roller skates and they play music from the 1950s. And it's a, it's a very, very, I live close to there. It's a very, very cool, fun afternoon, uh, little mini trip. If anybody ever wants to go there, it's a kind of a eating adventure. And, and then with the history tied to it, I, I'm taking this out of order because you just mentioned Neon Sign, and immediately my mind went to the Orange Garden Restaurant, um, which also had a very famous Neon Sign, which now we have to go to a music stars to go see that sign. Yeah, uh, that's another, that was, a, I actually did a story on Neon Signs for New City Magazine in about 2006, and that one really stood out. It just, it was so just not only the sign but just the the it, it's sort of half art deco half neon it's just sort of like a classic american diner but it was chinese um and kind of like a, they had like a little stainless steel in front and the glowing neon sign and the orange garden is chicago's oldest chinese restaurant 
And uh, when you go there, you know, Superdog takes you back into the 50s. The Orange Garden takes you back into the 1930s. I mean, you could you could walk in there and you can see Humphrey Bogart, you know, lighting a cigarette, you know, and, and, and having a martini. It's just right. Very little has changed. And it, it is a, um, you know, it's, it's still sort of an iconic Chicago place. And, yeah, uh, from the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corgan. Billy Corgan bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And next Orange Garden is on Irving Park. It's not far from WGN Studio. So it's actually a regular place that people order in from over uh, there as well. Um, this, I'm a real fan of the uh, Columbian Exposition of 1893, the World's Fair, and I have a lot of stuff from it. So I was especially intrigued when you point to the fact that there is one ticket booth left uh, that we know of from the Fair of 1893. I tried to kind of get a sense of where it was. You do describe it, but I wasn't plugging into it. Where Where is that ticket booth? It almost looks like it's a... I don't have the address on top of my but there is there are a series of Frank Lloyd Wright houses. Um, it's off of like a little side street, and um, it's it's in there. There's some there's some larger, more quote unquote famous Frank Lloyd Wright houses that it's with. And uh, this this ticket booth, I don't know, you know, I get, I think I was just looking for Frank Lloyd Wright houses for the the piece I did on Frank Lloyd Wright that appears oh. earlier in the book. And I saw this ticket booth, and I took a picture of it, and I. Uh, you know, did some research on it, and apparently it is it is is really cool. It's a cement ticket booth that somehow they 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 is survived for what almost 135 years, um, and it's in the backyard of the home. It's just just it's, it's just exactly the way it was in the in the in the exposition in 1893. And what's your sense? Do the people who have those homes and buildings around it do they understand what it is? Because what I oh sure, I think, well the, the 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 owner when I wrote the book, the owner. That was, you know, his kind of deal. He he, he preserved this stuff. But I think they recently sold the house. Um, and they have oh, a really, okay. really nice golden retriever dog that lives next door. And I went there several times to take pictures or do research. And the dog got to know me. And it was a, one of the best parts of writing the book. He would recognize me and wag his tail. Um, I love it. Dogs are the best. Uh, chapter five takes us into the world of food. And so um, you, this melting pot that we are, you talk about the famous Chicago tamale, uh, Italian beef, which, of course, the you know, is now a big deal because of the Netflix show or Hulu, whatever show that's on. But um, Malort, uh, talk to me about Malort um, and its development here. Uh, there's a history to that. Yeah, everybody, everybody is still fascinated by Malort. Uh, I was at a Rolling Stones concert in right before the pandemic. So it must've been what, 2018 or might've been right after, but uh, Mick Jagger's 70,000 people. And he said, I played Chicago 39 times and I've never had an Italian beef or a shot of Malort. So that is the status that, that Malort has gained when Mick Jagger's talking about it in front of nearly a hundred thousand people. Um, Malort is actually derived from a Swedish liquor called Bosk, Bosk, remember those, the Swedish words with all the little dots over the U that I can't pronounce, but um, it's basically made partially out of wormwood, uh, which is a little bit related to absinthe, which is very, very, very strong. Um, and apparently they did not have a really great tradition. They had mead, but unlike some other European countries, they weren't really into wine and beer and drinking in Sweden. And when they introduced this bass, the people just kind of went nuts over it. Uh, and it was very popular and it was somewhat addictive and, and so forth. So Jepson, um, Swedish immigrant, arrived in Andersonville, where all the Swedish came uh, in the 1910s, 20s, 30s. Um, and he realized there was kind of nothing like it in the area. So he made it, 
you know, in his garage, in his basement, whatever one of cliche you want to use, uh, you know, a stove pot brewing, but he made small batches of it. And he just sold it to the, the Swedish and Scandinavian immigrants in the neighborhood because it reminded him of home. Uh, legend, which is true or not, this is just another great story. Whether it's true or not, it's such a good story. It's like Tennyson. Um, apparently, during Prohibition, he was stopped by the police. And he said, this is an alcohol, it's cough syrup. And he gave the police a shot. And the police said, there's definitely cough syrup. And they didn't bother him for the yeah. rest of Prohibition. Um, so so Jepson sold it uh, to a guy named Brody. Uh, as he got older, and Brody was an attorney who had an office on, you know, so Chicago Avenue, that area, Chicago LaSalle, fairly prominent, and he just did it as a hobby um, during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Um, he eventually kind of uh, deemed it to his secretary when he got older and didn't want to take care of it anymore. Um, but what happened in the it was always popular in the Scandinavian neighborhoods, and also became popular with tradesmen. Uh, the Polish tradesmen that came here and of all the ethnics, you know, as a put a hair on your chest kind of manly drink. And, it, and eventually these guys lived around the Polish neighborhood division in Milwaukee and, you know, Ukrainian village and so forth. So when it became hipster, when the, you know, there's like the trade off between the, 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 the Scandinavians and the Polish that lived in the neighborhood, the hipsters that moved in, the Malort sort of stayed. So the hipsters would watch the, the Scandinavian and the Polish drink these shots of Malort. And so they, these, what's this stuff? So it became popular with the college students and hipsters, uh, 2000, about the year 2000, 2005. And then it just sort of, it, it just sort of took off from there. Yeah, now, I mean, now different holidays, they're flavoring it. They're all, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever tried Malort. I don't know if I have. I'm not sure if I want to, but as a Chicago thing, I know it's a famous thing to try. You, the last chapter of the book is um, you get into kind of the criminal world and, and famous crimes and that sort of stuff. I'd almost rather end talking about food. So I'll come back to one food item before we're okay, done. Um, but, um, and just a couple of the crimes. First of all, crime of the century, the famous Leopold and Loeb uh, trial. Those, those guys, this was here. Yeah, that was in Hyde Park, just in that neighborhood a few days ago, in the, the Frank's Mansion, which was where the victim of the crime lived. Um, it's still there. Bobby Frank's. Exactly and yeah, he, this was way. meant to be, this was what these guys thought they would pull off as the perfect crime. Yeah, it was, it was two gentlemen, and they were extremely high IQ. They both graduated from college, I believe, the University of Michigan when they were like 20. Um, and, um, they were kind of bored. They were very rich. They were just rich, bored kids, uh, young men, but really kids. And so they just they just thought they would they would commit this crime. Uh, you know, like I say, almost out of boredom, out of a challenge. And and they murdered this this poor young man who was a neighbor of theirs, who they actually knew uh, sort of just from the neighborhood. Um, but the resulting trial was quite like is called the trial of the century because it was two rich young men. Uh, very educated, killing a very, uh, a very another rich boy, and the way it was did, a Clarence Darrow defended them, and uh, it, you know it was just very scandalous because because of the money and the wealth in, involved. Yeah, and it was here. You, you all, Jeffrey Dahmer, also famous, of course, when he committed his crimes pretty much in Wisconsin where he lived. But one of the scary things, I don't live all that far from there, but you said the bar that he would spend a lot of time in is known as the L&L Tap at Clark and Belmont. I'm not that far. Is that bar, I've never actually looked. Is the bar still there? It's L&L? still there. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's it's featured on some of those dive bar shows on cable. Uh, 
you know, it's been there obviously probably since the 30s or 20s. Uh, you know, it's still what we call an old man's bar. And when, when Ridleyville is like the hip young place with all the, the young people, you know, hanging out and the singles and so forth. But this is like the last old man's bar in the neighborhood. But apparently, yes, Dahmer would go in there. I don't know if you remember, but I'm sure many viewers remember that that area of Clark, Belmont, Sheffield. They used to call it Pumpkin Donuts. It was kind of a hangout for the Oh, yeah, Dunkin' Donuts is there forever. Yeah, the alley was there, and they had all these alternative tattoo shops. So the the they sort of punk. There's still plenty goth punk alternative kids, but that kind of became their hangout. And unfortunately, many of these kids were from broken homes, runaways, uh, didn't have the greatest family support. So there was a lot of uh, kind of stuff that they were they were victimized a lot. I'm sure Dahmer heard word of it, but you know what I quote in my book and what happens in the in what happened was that when Dahmer was arrested, uh, his name was flashed across the television screen, national television, local television, and one of the bartenders looked at the screen and said, "Oh my God, that's the guy who used to sit in the corner and look at the kids." Yeah, you've got that story in the book. That it, it just kind of freak out. And of course, Richard Speck, who murdered eight nurses, he lived uh, at the Raleigh Hotel. Raleigh Hotel still functioning. It's a beautiful building. Uh, it's just a shame that we don't, we probably don't remember, but people of a little generation before us, River North was sort of like a miniature skid row at one time. It's very, very hard to imagine, but it was, uh, bars, seedy bars, uh, burlesque houses, uh, diners, uh, adult bookstores. And, and it, you know, and so there was the, the, the place where Spec State was kind of a, they call it a men's hotel. But, you know, it's just like a flea bag hotel. And, and that's where he he stayed. Uh, I, I believe what he did is he he committed the murders on the southeast side. Then he stayed for a while at this Raleigh Hotel. And then he I think he somewhat got wind of the police being after him. And he was actually caught in a hotel in what was the, the real skid row like Halstead and Madison. But once again, I guess he would talk to the woman in the lobby at the desk a lot. And uh, the police came in. Uh, the same story. She she saw this the, the picture. She saw his picture on the cover of the newspaper, and she said, "Oh my God, that's him." The same kind of story as the Dahmer. I and the police kid, came, but... and she said, "I definitely know this guy. He was here yesterday." Yeah, I was a little kid at the time. Boy, that was a terrifying, terrifying situation. What? So Chicago, obviously, David. In, in the history, it's it, it's good, it's bad, it's all. But I mean, there's so much here. It, the truth, could we look at any city? Can we go to Cleveland, New York? I mean, every city is rich with this kind of history. Or is there something special about Chicago for all the good or the bad that brings so much important occurrences, buildings here? I just, I just stayed in the book and I hope that, you know, obviously people buy the book and, and read about it, but not just because all of us authors want people to buy our book, but it is a, it is a special place. I mean, when you travel outside of Chicago, uh, wonderful as wonderful as Dallas, Houston, Phoenix, Denver, even there, there's some stuff in these cities that's interesting, but it's mostly strip malls and chain uh, restaurants and chain stores and highways and, and you know, what do you call those little strip malls? Uh, you know, Chicago has a very rich history. Other cities do, you know, Boston, New York, uh, Philadelphia, uh, you know, all the older eastern cities are even older than Chicago. They're at least 100 years older. Uh, Baltimore, you know, you got stuff there, graves from the 1600s. But I think the fact that Chicago was just in the snap dad center of the country, I think that that gave it. So you had you had a lot of different 
for good or better or worse characters coming here. And also a lot of people came, you know, we're talking about the murderers and so forth. A lot of people came here to get away from the East Coast. At the time, like Chaplin came, this was the, the quote-unquote West. Um, you know, uh, Al Capone, for better or worse, was, uh, believe it or not, wanted for a crime in New York, and he came here to get away from, you know, a lot of these people, uh, uh, Frank L. Baum, the, the author of Oz, uh, you know, these people were, were well-traveled. And a lot of people came to Chicago just the way that people sort of in the, I would say, the 40s and 50s went to Los Angeles. It was sort of a place where people came, immigrants, obviously, from all over the world, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Greece. Uh, now now we have Central American, the Great African, the Great Migration. Uh, you mentioned Muddy Waters, like, you know, that he was – the representative, the, the A1 representative of the Great Migration and all the, the culture that the African-Americans brought to Chicago in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, and, and, and onward. Um, so I think, once again, it just being in the middle. I mean, the, the African-Americans yeah. came here because it was closer than New York. You know, they could just take a quick train or bus from Mississippi. And you mentioned even there, you know, Al Capone, Dillinger, we can go on and on. But of course, here's the good news. Where people used to say, what do you think of Chicago and Al Capone is, it, for some people, it still comes out of their mouth. But but now there's Michael Jordan and there's Oprah and, and there's a lot of other pleasant things that history did. Does there, you could write seven more volumes of this and probably never touch the same places twice. Is this project done for you or do you look and say, no, there's so much more I got to do? When I finished Old Chicago, I, I there were some places. Um, for now, I think it's, it's, it's going to rest for a while. Okay. Um, it takes a lot of work. Well, it's just a lot of work. And, you know, and there's also been actually quite a bit of, you know, there's been there has been focus on Chicago. You've got the Italian beef show that you mentioned on uh, right on Hulu and, and you've got the, the series filmed here. You know, I, we're both we both remember when we were, quote, kids or younger that they never filmed any movies here. And when they first started filming a couple of movies, the Blues Brothers and there was a Steve McQueen movie and a couple of others, it was a real big deal. Yeah. And now oh, it's like, now, you know, there's there's the strike, but before that, you'd see a movie set. And just like the people in Los Angeles, you'd be all, oh, no, there's a movie set. I got us wait in traffic, you know. Sure, the Steve McQueen, the car coming out of the, the uh, Marina City. Marina City, City. Right. yeah, yeah. Great, yeah. great stuff. Uh, I said I would end with food. So before we wrap up, I do want to mention that, you know, because there's like the really nice tamales that you can get, you know, authentic tamales. But we're the home of the Tom Tom tamale. And that's the kind of tamale that I get at a hot dog place or a hamburger place. And it's my favorite. I think that's a really cool story. Uh, you know, out of all of the stories in my book, some of you like, you some don't. The Chicago tamale, what we've been talking about, it really represents what Chicago is. Um, you know, we're all familiar with the Mexican tamale with the masa and the, the chunks of meat and the red sauce and the green sauce. The Chicago tamale is, is, is basically like a, like a big yellow cigar. Um, they're made yeah. in the machine. Uh, they're pressed in a machine and they're just an amalgamation of cultures. Um, you know, obviously the idea comes from the Mexicans, um, but the filling um, is similar, similar to what they call scrapple, which is an Appalachian type of thing, which is cornmeal and hamburger. Um, the African-Americans also had their version of tamales and Robert Johnson, actually the famous song, Sweet Home Chicago. And the song after that, he sung about the Chicago, the tamale man and the tamale woman. So they sold tamales in the African-American, their version in the African-American neighborhoods in the 30s and 40s. Um, and the tamale itself, you know, the ones that we're talking about, it was in, you know, basically it was Greek, Greek uh, Americans, Greek who had hot dog carts 
uh, in the 30s and 40s wanted something to sell besides hot dogs. So they figured out a way to make these tamales kind of portable, you know, and, and sellable and easier to easier to kind of keep on a hot dog cart. Yeah. So it's really an amalgamation of all of our, you know, Hispanic, African-American, European, Eastern European cultures. It represents Chicago quite well. And what I love is we did with all that we've talked about, we never talked about the oldest barber shop. We never, I mean, I, there's, I have a whole thing, a list here that we can go through, but that's why I want people to get the book, which is called Amazing Chicago. I know we're going to have it there. Oh, good. This usually I'm up on a green screen. You can't see it. And I think it's, I have it here too. Here we go. You've got it. Yours is, we both have it. Amazing Chicago. They say, yes, we both have it. We both, well, we both read it because you wrote it. And, uh, anyway, congratulations. It was just, uh, when I get into the history of Chicago, I can't get enough of it. And this book, is it makes a great gift because it's just again each page or every two pages it's a different location there's just so much to it something is doesn't interest you just turn the page you got something else to go after uh and that's great people can get this book at amazon.com any special place you want them to buy it or amazon amazon.com uh my i can go through my website davidwitterchicago.com um i'm actually going to have an event I have a lot, actually, I have a lot of events, but um, and people can get them there because of the timing. I don't want to say the event. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. People can check your website out and find out when and where you will be so they can come meet you in person and get, I'm sure, a signed copy of the book. Yes. Amazing Chicago is the book. David Witter, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for writing the book. I ate up every page of it. I'm going to keep looking at it. And um, and thank you. I appreciate your time. I hope everybody picks thank up. Thank you so much for the in-depth uh, in interview. Yeah. You got it. We'll see you uh, at the next edition of the Midland Authors event next year. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, David. Be well.